All right, welcome back. It's the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode number 81. I'm your host, Brian. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners and tackle them from the perspective of LEOs and concealed carriers, giving you both angles of discussion. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast. It's part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network, along with uh, Firearms Trainers podcast and the ConcealedCarry.com podcast. Riley and uh, Rob Beckman do a great job. Go check them out. Today, I'm joined by Mark Fricky, retired cop and uh, instructor friend of mine that does uh, all manner of firearms instruction. And also ammunition testing. So, we're going to talk defensive am, am eh, defensive ammunition selection uh, for the concealed carrier, the cop, and uh, talk about what those testing protocols are and what they mean. So, uh, give you a little insight on that. But first, a word from our sponsors. EDC Belt Co., EDC Belt Company, the foundation belt. You know it. Links in the show notes. CCW Safe Off 2D10 gets you 10% off your membership. Links in the show notes. Uh, the Concealed Carry Podcast giveaways. Like last week, they gave away a set of rechargeable 16340 batteries. And uh, not sure what's coming next week, but you got to sign up weekly to be eligible. And uh, of course, the Guardian Conference is right around the corner. I'm fixing to head to Tom Givens Range Master myself. Going to be out there uh, with uh, Michael Burgess. If you were at the Guardian Conference last year, you know Michael. Uh, he's also been a podcast guest a couple of times. So uh, let's see. I guess that's kind of about it for me. Um, going to bring in our guest, Mark Fricky, in a few minutes. For those of you that didn't know, he just published a really extensive uh, revolver ammunition test. So we're going to talk about that and, uh, you know, see where else the... Uh, rabbit hole goes let's bring him in and we're we're live and uh mark first time guest first time for you being a guest on the off duty on duty podcast and uh we we have a bit of an interesting history as we met like 18 years ago at the ppc nationals or something and just in passing and then we reconnected at the revolver roundup when you you know you accused me of Hey, I think I used to shoot PPC with your dad. And I'm like, no, dude, that was me. That was funny. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. I thought it was your dad. Yeah. But, uh, but either way, uh, so give me like the two minute bio on Mark Fricky. Okay. Um, I'm a retired sergeant from the Prescott, Arizona police department. And I've, uh, did, uh, 28 years total law enforcement, I was a fire instructor from 80 till I retired uh, with, as far as there, I worked for the state of Arizona for Arizona post. And I also uh, work for another national organization, which I won't name here. In addition to that, I have my own training company, uh, American Firearms Training and Tactics, uh, of which I travel around the country and I've been in business since 92. So I got 30 years on with that. Wow. That's like uh, every firearms instructor's dream. So <laughs> be able to travel around the country and teach, right? Exactly. Uh, a great gig. I can't believe I get paid to do it. That's awesome. Well, we uh, at Revolver Roundup discussed some uh, ammunition stuff, and you were, 
I hesitate to say like propeller head, but uh, you have a great deal of knowledge that uh, some of the listener audience, cops, concealed carriers, that's primarily who tunes in, uh, might be interested in because I get the question about five times a week, well, how do you pick your ammo? And for me, it's it's pretty simple. My department hands me the ammo that I'm supposed to carry for that year, and I have a list of approved ammunition for every caliber. So, um, And they typically follow the DOJ, NIJ, uh something off of their their published list every year is something that we buy on right. contract right so so yes, for me yes. yeah so for me it's really simple it's I, I don't have to really put a lot of uh thought into it uh but we're going to cover a few things on you know ammunition selection considerations and uh and what are the testing protocols people ask me that one all the time so uh and you have a great deal more knowledge than i do about the subject so well, you know, it depends on what, you know, a school of thought you go with. I mean, there's been, we've had a lot of history of fire ballistic testing now. I mean, from the turn of the uh, uh, 20th century in 1904, I mean, that was when the first official tests were really started after uh, the 38 long coal wouldn't work in the Philippines and they wanted to find out why. And so you had Thompson Lagarde who did their test and they shot cattle and cadavers or I'm sorry, cadavers and uh, alike. And it, uh, it was a start. And then you have uh, Julian Hatcher who then took their study and made it into a um, system that you could determine bullet uh, effectiveness by a mathematical formula. And then you have Jeff Cooper who continued that on and made it simpler with his formula version of it. Uh, you had a lot of other tests that were done too uh, in the 70s and early yeah, 70s. You got the DOJ and uh, Law Enforcement Assistant Administration doing their relative incapacitation uh, index. And it was actually a, a pretty good system. It was the first time a computer was used for it. They uh, made it so the computer would register how much um, of the uh, energy was dumped in the target and also the temporary wound cavity. The larger the wound cavity, the higher the index it got. They used a penetration of eight and a half, uh, 8.6, I think it was, to make it the uh, maximum. And the larger the wound capacity, or I'm sorry, the larger the incapacitation of the uh, tissue, temporary stretching, the loud was better. If a round went deep, it was not considered to be as good which led us to things like the Glazer safety slug being excellent and a lot of the lightweight uh, 9mm hollow points being excellent. And it really wasn't a bad test uh, for where as far as it went because it, the computer model was geared towards shooting the frontal chest. And we're not that thick from the front to the insides of there. But when you have to shoot shooting from the sides or other body uh, angles or going through other stuff, then that's where it was flawed, which kind of got us into that mess in Miami-Dade when uh, – the FBI agents were there taking on platinmatics. The first shot into plat, if it had gone deep enough, probably would not have had any of the results it did, but it did stop too soon and didn't give a uh, incapacitating wound, didn't do enough damage. So what kind of medium were they using in that, what'd you call it, the Hatcher test, right? A Hatcher test, or, took, uh, he, Hatcher didn't take it. He didn't do any tests. He took the Tom Lagarde test, which were actual shootings of, again, dead bodies, cattle, and a couple of horses. And they took, they took how long it took them to 
die and just and to lay down and die. And that's what they use it for their determinations to whether a bullet was effective or not. And they said if nothing less than a 45 would work because, uh, you know, you got to make shots hit. The case point they put out was uh, a Filipino that had escaped from uh, prison and was coming at uh, troops and the troop raised 38 and put four rounds into him, three in the chest, somewhere in pretty good shots in the chest from the way the report said, but we don't know where for sure. And one in his wrist and he didn't stop and end up having him bludgeon him with a uh, butt of a rifle to stop him. And that was one of many situations. So they, they said 45 shooting multiple rounds into the chest was the best way to stop people. And that's how we got the, the 45 auto right uh, used for there. Hatcher just took that and made it into a mathematical formula called relative incapacitation index. I'm sorry, no, uh, sorry, wrong one. That's the DOJ's. I've uh, got it here. Relative stopping power index. And uh, then Cooper took that from Hatcher and simplified it down into a simpler system to determine it. And then we went started getting some more scientific, and I say the DOJ launched theirs with a computer simulator and 20% gel. That was where gel first became the yes, prominent media. Yes, that was the first documented use of gel in an actual recorded scientific thing. Probably was there before, but what, uh, as far as anything official, that was the first test that I know of. So that's uh, the DOJ. When when did that come about, the gel test? That would have been in the late 70s, I think like a 78, something like that. Yeah, okay. Um, I remember coming out, I was a cop in Nebraska, and I remember coming out and reading about it and thinking, okay, fine. So I went out and ran out and bought some later safety slugs. That must be the best load because the federal government said so. Yeah, I remember uh, mid-80s uh, because, you know, I, I grew up in a gun shop. So mid eighties, the, the, the glazer safety slugs. And I think I still have a couple of packages of 38 special glazers somewhere, uh, that were basically a shot filled hollow point that was sealed. They're, they're a, uh, copper jacket filled with lead pellets with then at times suspended in some kind of a, uh, like Teflon mm-hmm. with a cap on uh, the first generation of them, uh, the cap was very rough looking. And I mean, I've got some 45s and I've got some 38s from the original ones. Uh, and then they started improving it, putting a little, little plastic tip on them. And then uh, when Corbon bought them, then they started coming out with a round nose version. Um, yeah. So it would go deeper because uh, there was some, I've known some cases where guys got shot with it and devastating wound, frontal chest. Just awesome. Did, I mean, did exactly what I was supposed to. And then cases where like a female officer in the Dallas area shot a guy with a 357 laser uh, into a leather jacket and the round just exploded onto his chest but never made it into the body cavity. So that was the downside to that load. It was, uh, if you want to call it, too uh, explosive if it didn't make it in. And if a guy had a lot, a lot of areas of fat or something like that, then that would also cause issues. It wouldn't get it deep enough. Well, Back to the DOJ NIJ selection, uh, that process. Every year they publish, and generally it's open source after after it's been disseminated to law enforcement. It, it, it's pretty well open source now. Yes. And every year, uh, you know, there's three or four loadings that I see that consistently are are there every year. You know, like Federal HST, well, Golden Saber. Yeah gold dot stuff like that those three kind of rain uh and into a hornady in there too yeah that the critical duty um yeah. so 
with that, uh, you know, for a, a cop, it really simplifies the process. Just, Hey, this is what, uh, this year, last year's list of, uh, criteria, these, these rounds met it. And, uh, they, they tend to stay pretty well the same. They don't very rarely do you see one drop off and another one that's just out of the blue come, come up and, and hit the, uh, hit all the parameters, but can you talk mm-hmm. about some of the parameters on the DOJ NIJ test as far as sure the FBI protocol is pretty much what everybody uses mm-hmm. majority of people that uses uh, nationwide. It has six tests involved in shooting bare gelatin, 10% bare gelatin uh, shooting through heavy clothing, which is a t-shirt, um, a flannel shirt, uh, polar fleece. And I think there's a fourth thing in there. Four, um, is it four layer denim? A denim. A denim, a denim, a denim, child, denim. And then they shoot through sheet metal, uh, two pieces of 20 gauge sheet metal, like a car door. Uh, they shoot through an interior wall through two wall boards with a space, like a two before space in between, uh, shoot through a piece of three quarter inch paint plywood and then shoot through windshield glass. And for a bullet to pass, it must successfully go in uh, to at least 12 inches of penetration through all of those. And then they try to make sure that it doesn't go past 18 inches an ideal. Although the FBI, if it goes deeper than that, it doesn't, they don't really care, I guess. Uh, But 18 inches, 12 to 18 is what they're protocol for that. And that's good, except that, again, it's more civilians. If you're shooting somebody from the front and something goes 18 inches, it's going to overpenetrate most people. And that's the downside to um, that particular version of the test, um, not necessary that it's there, but police officers have a different mission than civilians. Police right. officers have to shoot through things potentially to get to people, uh, again, through car doors or through a interior wall or a windshield where the average civilian is just dealing with one-on-one close and, you know, maybe more people, but, but usually one-on-one close where there's not any barriers in between. You're not shooting through a wall. You're not shooting through a windshield be hard pressed for civilian to be justified to usually shooting through somebody's windshield. It's going to be hard for them to say that, you know, they were uh, in fear of their life, even if the car is coming at them, what, what are they doing out in the street? So, right. I mean, there are circumstances, I guess you could have that, but it'd be slight. It's usually people, people facing each other and nothing else there. So all we really have to worry about is getting through clothing um, and coming in at angles of attack that are not necessarily straight. Although most Self-defense shootings are going to be straight on, but people can be turning, can be turning their bodies. You could be moving. So having a depth in there that they'll get to vital organs from both sides, uh, from the side of the body or the front are what we're looking for for civilians. Okay. And you recently informed me that there is a U S customs border protection protocol that is, that slightly differs from DOJ and IJ or the FBI protocol. Right. Uh, Right. And I actually, uh, I got some of their ammo from one of the, uh, at a pistol match of all things, uh, their, their 147 grain super, whatever it was. I don't, I don't even know what it was. I think it's spear G2 or some format of it, but, you know, the G, uh, the G2 is nothing more than a, a gold dot with a plastic cap on it. Yeah. This, this had a, a coating and it was, uh, it had power bands much like an old PPC bullet. Right. So yeah. Um, and those guys are pretty historically good at shooting accuracy. So what, what differs in their protocol test from, uh, say the DOJ? 
They just use three tests. They do bare gelatin, heavy clothing, and windshield glass. Okay. And their criteria is they don't want overpenetration. They want to uh, minimize the chance of that based on the fact that they have to shoot around a lot of people at times based on their, their job. And they get the, the Border Patrol gets involved in many, many more shootings than the FBI or any other federal agency combined. Uh, they're actively involved on the border virtually every day. And, you know, you and I have discussed that in the past that it's uh, it's it is literally a war zone down there. So they, they get involved in a lot. So their criteria is that they needed to go a minimum of eight and 12 is ideal. They don't want it to go any farther than 15. And so but they use three tests. They're not shooting through car doors because car doors, while it sounds great, you can't you have no idea whether a bullet's going to make it through a car door or not. There's just too much stuff and too many variables in there. I mean, I've shot them with rifles and it car doors have stopped rifle rounds. Um, it, it's just you never know. Yeah, I've done the and same. Shooting through plywood, I mean, that's not something we normally do. I mean, it's a good a standardized test. I've used plywood a lot of my career. Um, and shooting through wallboard, I don't know that there's a bullet out there uh, that doesn't go through wallboard sufficiently powerful enough to uh, kill somebody on the other side of it. It just doesn't stop stuff. I mean, even even wad cutters go through that more than sufficiently to yeah. um, go deep enough to cause serious injury. And we're just talking handguns because rifle bullets, totally yeah. different game. Yes. Uh, you were right. you were. Exactly right. Talking car doors, um, I, I spent a good deal of time uh, with several different models of vehicle and shooting them in different places of the door. And there was uh, the most predictable outcome was there was absolutely no predictable outcome. It was, absolutely. Uh, you know, two inches of variation on where you struck the door and from what angle you might get a complete pass through with bullet retention and you might get a complete fragmentation depending on what medium it hit in between so and you might not get any penetration at all right yes. i mean it just depends it just depends on what you're there uh, but yeah this that's you know so the fbi's protocol set up for that and it's based on what happened at the miami day shootout i mean a lot of it was based on that because they wanted to make sure that they didn't have that happen again and i and i completely appreciate that i think it's a great test i think it's a good a good place to go it certainly gives us a good standard um but if it's the correct one, um, I don't know. There's a lot of other ideas out there. Like I said, the NESA police, they were one of the first ones that also uh, went to semi-autos. And they had the plus P plus 9 millimeters, uh, 115 grains, and they had great success with them. Uh, they, they liked them a lot, and they didn't have any overpenetration issues. And Border Patrol kind of based their t testing based on the FBI's and the NESA the police's uh, evaluations. So that's kind of where we are today as far as that. Now, we have the best bullets in the world right now. I mean, there's never been a time where we've had better ammunition. This stuff does work. Most of it will do what it's supposed to do. The manufacturers are making sure that they're meeting that FBI standard or they wouldn't be in business doing it. Uh, and it's not just the bullet performance, though. We also have to talk about the uh, shooter's performance. Right. And, you know, again, you and I have talked this in the past that, you know, back in the days when we carried revolvers, which I did, I carried a revolver for half my career, uh, we knew we had six and we needed to get it done in six. If it, if it was going to be a reload involved, it was really going to be a bad day for us if we had to do a reload with a revolver. And if you look back at history, it was somewhere in the area of the average shooting was about 3.5 rounds fired by law enforcement before the fight was over. Uh, then we go now forward to the semi-automatic and it jumped dramatically. Um, and... I think we've gotten out of the 
quality of shots fired versus the volume of shots fired. And it's not just because of uh, having more bullets. It's the fact that I don't think we train enough, but that's, that's, a, that's another issue. We're talking, just sticking with bullets. The bullets will do the job. If you put the bullets where they're supposed to go, they'll do the job. You hit the peripherals of those vital organs in the body. They're not going to do anything because very simple thing. I like to put this very simple for some of my civilian classes is that pistol bullets do their damage minus a central nervous system hit, which will incapacitate instantly by cutting tissue, causing hemorrhaging, thus creating hypovolemic shock, shutting the brain's ability to function down by the lack of blood flowing to it. Or you get incapacitation from psychological. I've been shot. Oh, my God, I must fall down. But you can't count on the psychological, so we've got to rely on the trauma. Pistol rounds, people overestimate them. You really, you can hit me harder with your fist in my chest than most pistol rounds hit me. It's that the, the energy is distributed into the body because of that hard projectile. But as far as p- foot pounds of energy, it's like a good punch, which is one thing that the uh, relative infestation index thing had. Is it based everything off of um, temporary wound cavity? Well, your temporary wound cavity does do some damage, but pistol bullets don't have enough to tear the organs and the tissue beyond its ability to stretch. So basically, it's poking a hole in it, which is the t- crush factor. That's actually destroying tissue and then basically bruising the rest of the tissue around it. So it's like a bruise where rifle rounds, when they hit because of the hydrostatic shock that they're hitting it with, cause the organs to stretch beyond their ability to stretch, ripping and tearing them, which is why rifles work so much better. But right. pistol rounds do their damage from cutting tissue, causing hemorrhaging, thus creating shock. Yeah. So uh, when I hired into law enforcement, the 40 Smith and Wesson was king, right? And I tell a lot of people, uh, one of the reasons I stuck with that cartridge for as long as I did, you know, and because of tendonitis and everything else, uh, was because that was the first cartridge that was very prominent that they produced bonded hollow points for, right? So, uh, and that was my primary justification for carrying that, that, that cartridge was, I can get bonded ammo issued to me every year for that, for that platform. Uh, well, for, for your, for your folks on there, let's know what bonded ammo is. Yes, please. Pistol bullets, jacketed pistol bullets, uh, consist of a copper jacket or some kind of a gilding metal jacket. In case of a silver tip, it's not copper and a lead core. Um, bonded bullets, they bond those two together because many times, especially older pistol bullets, when they would hit, if they'd expand, you would get core and jacket separation, which would then have a tendency to reduce penetration uh, because you're now putting two lighter pieces of material going downrange into the bad guy. And so it wouldn't necessarily go deep enough. Or if it went through a barrier and had core jacket separation, it certainly wouldn't go deep enough. So bonded bullets simply keeps the bullet together uh, by chemically bonding the two materials together so they don't come apart. And that was the reason for bonded bullets. Yeah, and that's the uh, reason I suffer from chronic tendonitis. So thanks, 40. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a decent cartridge. Um, it's a very high-pressure cartridge. I think you know that. Uh, it's, it's up in the 357 Magnum category, and it's not very tolerant to any – variations if a bullet gets seated back in the case and it really spikes it it's it's a maximum pressure cartridge it was built after the miami-dade shootout the 10 millimeters what the fbi went with as their gun but the 40 would fit in a uh, smaller frame gun which meant it fit people's hands better but it's a pretty high intensity cartridge 
yeah. people can shoot forties, but people shoot nines better. Yeah. And that's the comes down to the other part of that is for accuracy and ability to control the gun. There's there's bullets out there that'll stop anything. It's just can you hit with it? And that's the big criteria which gets us into that area when we want it to go there into sub dose revolvers. That there's a lot of good ammo out there, but can you shoot it and can you shoot it effectively? And that's the that's one of the issues, which is why we like the uh, revolver roundup is we get a chance to test and evaluate this stuff. Yeah, and let's uh, before we dive too far off into that. Um, one of the things, and maybe you can dispel this for me, that I've I've seen is uh, most ammunition, most commercially available, uh, what would you call it, like duty ammunition or like civilian defensive ammunition, seems to be calibrated to work out of about a four-inch barrel. That seems to be yeah, the norm. I would agree with that. And it's because you're getting enough higher velocities with that. Um, and again, that gears toward because of the revolver was traditionally a four inch mm-hmm. service revolver. And most ammunition was built then is now there's specific ammo that's been built for snubbies theoretically. Um, and it just depends on what your, what your criteria of shooting is, um, and what your median is. Evan Marshall, who I have a lot of respect for has made a statement many times. And I like the statement I stole it from him is gel is not people. Gel is simply a test median based on uh, computer-generated total summation of all the body parts. It gives us a test median. We can test one bullet to another based on if a bullet works, seems to work well on the street. And that's what Sanow and Marshall did on their studies. They, they looked at stuff that worked on the street. Uh, Greg Elephus has done a great study on a lot of different shootings involving a lot of different calibers, even some really small calibers we normally don't consider personal defense. And the number 22 and 25 and 32 um, has got a lot of studies on that to show bullet placement is really the determining factor. And I think that's the case with anything. Pistol bullets will work best if you put them where they need to go. If you hit peripheral areas, you're not going to get the desired effect unless it's, again, uh, psychological. Right. Early in my career, I stayed on, uh, stayed pretty well abreast of uh, ammunition design, you know, rifle, shotgun, pistol, um, and pistol. The biggest leap I saw was when pretty much the DOJ NIJ test, everything was bonded. It was like one year it came out and everything that met the criteria was bonded, save one or two. Yeah. And uh, th- there was a couple that weren't, but, um, and then we started seeing nine millimeter really dominate that scale. And I thought, you know, so for the last six, eight years, I've carried a nine millimeter, uh, easier right. to shoot. It's easier on the tendonitis, it's cheaper to practice with. Um, and then rifle bullets was, was kind of the same, uh, but it didn't seem to be as critical, right? Cause rifle velocities do, do horrific things to, uh, human bodies, but, um, and then shotguns, uh, I haven't seen much testing protocol, but when the biggest leap I saw there was, uh, like the controlled flight cups that were, you know, flight controlled, uh, buckshot and yeah. Sabo slugs that, that would shoot like a rifle out to 200 yards. And then well, we went, we went different directions on shotgun at one time. A big pattern was a good thing. Thought right. It was a good thing. And, you know, I remember uh, in the seventies, there was a thing called the spreader and it was basically mm-hmm. a compressed vertical um, 
choke, if you want to call it that, if it was a choke, that would spread the pattern out over like an eight foot area on purpose. Right. Um, and of course, that's also when they used shotguns for riot control, which was kind of interesting with birdshot. Uh, a little different philosophy then. Uh, but now we want we want be held accountable for our projectiles go. We want them to hit. And so shotgun was traditionally a 15 yard and in with buckshot. Um, mm-hmm. If you went beyond about 15 yards, you took a chance of having projectiles flying off and getting somebody hurt. And so now we have stuff with the, like I say, flight control and Hornady also uses a version of that. Um, they bought the, the rights to that from uh, the person who invented it. And so both of both those companies had their loads. Winchester and Federal, um, I'm sorry, Winchester and Remington are going to be coming out with new shotgun ammo because the patent has expired on the flight control. Yeah. So now they can come out with some des- different design stuff. And so I think we're going to see some improvement in shotgun ammo. But back to your point on the pistols is the nine uh, millimeter has been around a long time. It's one of the oldest cartridges we still have in service. It and the, the 38 uh, and the 45, I mean, they've been around forever. And the nine is the most prolific cartridge in the world. I mean, you can't find a gun. I mean, you can shoot anything from a revolver to, you know, uh, a rifle. I've got multiple uh, nine millimeter carbines and it's an effective load. And with proper bullets, it's a very effective load. Um, I mean, you know, the German army did a good job on us with it, with nine millimeter ball. So yeah. it still works. Um, well, I, I can remember gun shop era, you know, it, this is pre bonded bullets. I remember when the silver tip ammo came out and, uh, I was aware of two shootings that happened with it and both of them, they were fatal shootings. They, it, the ammunition worked. Uh, but one of them was with a 10 millimeter with 180 grain or it's either 180 or 175. And, uh, out of a Colt Delta elite and bad guy chasing good guy with a knife. And the good guy got a, a center 10 ring hit as we would call it. Right. And they recovered that bullet two and a half blocks away on a, an elderly woman's coffee table. And you could have reloaded it and fired it again. Uh, but the placement was good. Right. Right. And then, uh, I had a it friend. Works. Yeah. I had a friend of mine that had a very similar incident uh, in a, uh, almost in an entanglement, almost muzzle, muzzle distance, contact distance, uh, single shot stop, uh, ended in the carpet behind the bad guy. And that bullet looked intact enough that you could have reloaded it. And it was a one fifteen silver tip. And Interesting. yeah, around that time was when I started, you know, the hydro shock started coming out and then, uh, later on the gold dot and then there was the hydroshock 2 hst right and then uh you know the winchester ranger and the sxt and all this stuff started to seem like 90 early 90s that stuff really went into overdrive before that it was just okay it's a hollow point um and it's because we what we went to is law enforcement law enforcement made the transition from revolvers in the late 80s to early 90s and the semi-automatic was now being uh, brought into operation. And so ammunition development has been developed around the 9mm and the 40. Uh, what's the 40 now? The 9mm again. And assuring that you know, there's really no difference. I mean, from talking to multiple folks, doctors can't tell the difference if somebody's been shot with a 45 or a 9. They just can't tell the difference. The, the amount of damage done to the body. If the bullet expands, stays together, it's great. Again, 
the bullets do their job if we hit them when they're supposed to. It gets into that line of control again, uh, whether or not a, a shooter can control that, make that happen under stress conditions. And that's where, again, that training comes in versus the ammunition. The ammo will do the job. If you do your job, it's doing your job first. Right. Well, let's give, uh, let's give DB and Wayne and Greg and all those guys, let's give them a little, uh, a little teaser <laughs> and our, our buddy, Rob Garrett and all of them, um, wad cutter ammo. Let's talk about the, I won't call them surprising results, but, uh, the effectiveness of that, that we're now starting to see, especially out of short barreled revolvers. And with the rise in popularity now of, uh, like the Ruger LCR and LCRX and, uh, the four, four, two, six, four, two Smiths. Uh, I read an article the other day that said that, that like that was their top two selling guns was the four forty two and the six forty two. Um, I, I would not be surprised. I, I've known that for years. Yeah. And it, it, it was kind of surprising to me, especially with their polymer lines of guns and their rifle, you know, now rifle lines and stuff like that, that that was still their, <coughs> excuse me, it was still their, their flagship kind of pistol. Um, and a lot more people are exploring the snub nose revolver. Now, uh, I have friends that never looked twice at it that, uh, after the Pat Rogers revolver roundup, all of a sudden are going, well, yeah, there's still some usefulness to that, uh, mainly in how they can carry it and how they can hide it and how convenient it is to have that, uh, on their person, but there again, it's all back to, well, what ammo should I carry? And here and we are. Know, that's there we are. Um, the J frame, which is the quintessential small revolver. Uh, I have a buddy who was kind of one of my mentors when I was younger as a, a cop in the air force. Um, and he was the agent and a really squared away guy. And he told me, because I had several K-frames, and he goes, you need to get a J-frame. I said, why? He goes, because a J-frame you can carry when you can't carry any other gun. I went like, okay. And so I went out and, you know, followed my mentor's advice and bought my first Model 38 uh, in 1975 and have had it since. So I've got the same gun. But when you're turn ammo in it, uh, the traditional lead round nose, you know, we're talking now at about maybe 680 to 720 feet per second out of it with a round of projectile. And, you know, if you put the bullet again, where it's supposed to go, it would usually work. Uh, it wasn't the, the bullet was a bad bullet. It's just people were putting them where they are because it's a hard gun to shoot. And also had a little bit of more recoil to it. But now we went into hollow points. And of course the super valve was the first big hollow point that came out uh, in the seventies and everybody had to have it. And Lee Juris did a great job on coming out with that uh, concept and design, but hollow points were new. I mean, hollow points have been around for a long time. They talked about using hollow points in uh, the Thompson Lagarde test. So there's nothing like that's a, a brand new thing. But Juris really made it popular and with the uh, 110 grain Super Bell out of the 38 and got much better results on people because, again, it produced more energy and put that energy in the target and it worked. Uh, but it was harder to shoot, especially out of a lightweight gun. So wad cutters have not been, you know, you know, and I've, uh, not saying I'm doing an intense study of this, and I don't want to talk about it yet because I'm not finished with my study, but um, we'll get into a little that the wad cutter has been recommended by people as a defensive load uh, ever since guns came out. I mean, the British 
had wad cutters type bullets for the 455 and the other calibers they had the 476 uh, before the turn of the century, before the turn of the, of the 20th century, you know, uh, back in the 1800s and going into the, end of the 1900s. And they, they got it. They understood why. It just makes big, it makes common sense. I mean, if it, if it's a big bullet, it cuts a hole, it cuts more tissue, it's going to do that. If you just poke a hole and you're cutting tissue, you're not, but you're not replacing it. I don't know. I, I think wad cutters are effective. What I like about the wad cutter bullet personally is that I can shoot it really well, really fast, and with surgical precision. And on a little snub nose revolver, it shoots to sights, which is an important thing. I mean, there's a lot of good hollow points out there. And I've had a bunch of them, and I, you know, I still got them from my other guns. But out of a two-inch gun, they don't shoot to where I want them to. They have a lot of recoil, and as I've gotten older, I've gotten more recoil sensitive. The days of me shooting uh, Magnum ammunition out of a lightweight gun are long over. I'm not doing it anymore. Uh, and I don't have tar or uh, tendonitis, and I'm trying to avoid that. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, but I can deliver those bullets, and it's something that I think is important for folks. Now, you know, we did the uh, ballistic test uh, with Chuck Hagard at uh, the Revolver Roundup, and this is about the fourth year I've been involved with it. And the first year that we did it didn't really record any information. Uh, Chuck does it as a, a thing for information for the students to try their ammo in a ballistic medium. In this case, it was the clear ballistic gel, which is a really good stuff because it allows a person who does not have access to being able to make their own uh, 10% ordinance, you know, gelatin, a test medium shoot in besides water jugs or pine boards or, uh, you know, phone books or clay, which is, I've done all of those tests. Everything I've just named, I've done. I've done every one of those because that was the, the era and the time that when I was in, because I'm a lot older than you are. And it was, you know, that was, we did. Yeah. Anyway, the, the clear gel is really cool stuff and I like it and it's a very use but it's not people and people need to understand it. it's not a replacement for people. But anyway, Chuck did this jello test and, we showed bullet to bullet and going like, well, this bullet did this, but most of the things out of a snub nose revolver won't expand in, in the clear ballistic gel. Some of them do in people. And again, I don't think it's the bullet's performance. It's a bad thing. I think it is the controllability of most folks being able to shoot effectively uh, and being able to hit what they're shooting at. But we did these tests and we showed that most of the hollow points weren't expanding in that. Now, some people argue that the, Clear ballistic gel is not the same as ballistic gel, and I agree with that. We found uh, the relationship between them is similar but not exact. Um, it doesn't calibrate out the same, and we have tendency to have more penetration but less expansion with the clear ballistics. But, again, it's a baseline of one bullet to another, and so that's one reason why I like it. And people can afford that. Or they can go with milk jugs and shoot that, and I've done a lot of milk jugs. I've destroyed a lot, a lot of milk jugs. But the, the clear ballistics gel, without sounding like a product plug, you can buy a block of that and buy the yeah. mold and put it in your oven and shed the lead and copper out of it and uh, reuse it. And that that's one yeah. of the reasons Chuck and I talked uh, pretty extensively at, at TACCON about that. And, uh, cause I thought, man, did you just mix up a batch of gel and put it in the back of your car? And, uh, how are you keeping that cool? You know, there's temperature protocols and all this other stuff. And he goes, and he told me about the product and he said, you know, it, it, the way he summed it up, he said, this is about 95% of the, of the, uh, the, 
the gel media that, that every manufacturer tests. And I, I was like, Oh, okay. He said, you know, there's some variations, but, but this is very consistent. And he said, and I can heat it up and reuse it. So yeah. <laughs> win, win. Yeah. It's economic. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. I have been for uh, a few years now. I said, even before I saw Chuck stuff, I was, I was playing with it because I thought it was a, a good idea and it gave us a medium to test in uh, that we could use it. And I don't know how many blocks Chuck's got, but I got 12. And so I got a lot of this stuff. Wow. And I, uh, but I needed it for the, for that test I was doing with my wad cutter uh, study that I'm doing. So I needed a lot of it to be convenient because I couldn't come back and meld it down with the ranges and all that stuff. Plus I tested over 50 plus quad cutter loads. So to do that, I needed a lot of gel, but it's very useful to me. I do a lot of testing with it. Uh, I want to just put a shout out to uh, uh, Lucky Gunner and uh, Chris Baker and his crew. Yeah. If they, if you go online to that, they've got one of the best studies done on almost everything. 38 special three, seven, nine millimeter handgun ammo that I've seen out there using clear ballistic gel and heavy clothing. The, they give their gun criteria. They show you the videos of it. Uh, it's a really good gauge for you to be able to use from it. And I've used it. And when I started my tests on this wad cutter stuff, I looked at what they did, which was a Winchester wad cutter and what it performed in. And then I looked at actual ballistic gelatin of all the manufacturers out there, also Brass Fletcher and uh, others. And I found that the wad cutter would go between uh, 12 and 18 inches with an average of about 15 inches of penetration um, with a pretty good wound channel from the uh, cutting action of the wad cutter bullet. And that kind of correlated with my own personal observations of it. I know of three, one of which I was personally involved with, uh, wad cutter shootings. And the one, I mean, the guy got shot in the chest and he died so fast he didn't bleed uh, he was laying flat on his back with a hole in his chest. It looked like a, we've seen it, you know, a cardboard B-27. And he was just laying there and there was no blood around the wound and there was no real internal bleeding. I mean, he, it hit his heart and it just stopped. Hmm. And that was pretty, it was pretty impressive to me. And then another one, unfortunately, was a deputy who was shot and killed with a wad cutter. And then the third one was a uh, citizen who used wad cutters. And that was multiple hit with wad cutters. And it did its job, too. I mean, the guy didn't die, but he did stop what he was doing in there. So there's three cases, uh, two deaths and one stop. And the wad cutters were used in my own personal life. Plus, now I've got reading all this work from uh, people like uh, George uh, Nante, uh, who I was one of my people I read, uh, Skeeter Skelton, Elmer Keith, uh, the International Wound Ballistics, um, and Fackler and McPherson, and a lot of other folks, plus the history of the wad cutter, that they used to make service-grade wad cutters, not to target loads like we use today, but they used to make full-velocity wad cutters up in the uh, 800 feet per second area of which now we have specialty loads like that with the uh, Buffalo Boar and Underwood and several other companies are coming out. So the one cutter in itself is not the end all bullet. And I will never say that if you have a hollow point and you can control it and you can hit your target with it, use a hollow point by all means, use it and use whatever ammo you want. But for me and for a lot of other people, that 38 special one cutter does a nice job of being able to perform if I do my part. And that is hitting the target where I need to hit it. And that's what I look at again, quality versus quantity. Well, that, and 
Quad cutters are way easier to shoot out of a small snubby revolver. That's my point. You can um, control them. They're very low recoil. Yes. Yeah. And I, I was pretty intrigued by the whole uh, roundup anyway that at gunsight, but that was something that I kind of reconnected with. And then when I figured out that, uh, you know, wad cutter ammo out of a snub is a pretty viable option. Uh, I kind of cringed to think of how much of that I'd launched into a dirt berm through a piece of cardboard over the years, you know, all of us, my friend, <laughs> <laughs> right? So, so tell me, I, I know you don't want to, you don't want to tip your hat too much, but, uh, what are you doing with this, uh, this testing? What's the, what's okay, the end well, goal with that? The end state there. The end goal is to virtually test everything out there. That's water cutter, water cutter related. Um, I've done research and picked up stuff literally worldwide. Um, and I wanted to test one to the other lucky gunner. When they did their test, they did the velocities of four different, five different water cutters, I think or six different wad cutters and Winchester wad cutter was the fastest of their lot. So that's what they tested in the gel. Well, not all wad cutters are the same. And that's what people understand. Uh, there was a guy on one of our groups that we're on who posted a picture of one of these rubber training dumpies, you know, you use for impact on hands and you yeah. also use them for a target and had three wad cutters sticking out of the guy's chest of this rubber dummy's chest that didn't even penetrate in an inch. I mean, you could actually see the about two thirds of the bullet. And I went like, what one cutter are you using? Because uh, I've I've never seen that before in all these testing I've done. And he told me, and I said, you know, it, it's a true statement. We think wide cutters, and everybody said, well, wide cutter, let's get that. It depends on what wide cutter you get and what that wide cutter is doing out of your gun. And there's so many variables in there, and that's one of the things I'm doing this test is showing that your mileage will vary depending on what your gun is built, how it's built, how it's uh, maintained, your altitude, your temperatures you're shooting it. Um, there's so many variables in there. I've got two 642s, and there was a uh, almost a 20 feet per second difference between the two with the same ammunition consistently. Yeah. And that's because of cylinder gap. And cylinder gap has more effect on that than you'd think, and more effect than barrel length even. Uh, I got a 3-inch that shoots just as fast as a 6-inch I own. And it has to do with the barrel gap. more barrel gap, the less velocity you get. Uh, so the purpose for this was self-gratification as far as that i wanted to find out for sure what worked you know i'm I'm looking at myself but i wanted to put out real information because i thought people were not getting correct information either bad-mouthing it or praising it beyond its thing of what it can and can't do so i'm testing all these different wad cutter loads through a variety of tests um velocity penetration uh penetration through medians uh besides just the clear ballistic gel i mean i did bare gel but i did uh, heavy clothing. I did four layer denim, which is the international room ballistic standard. Uh, we shot it through wallboard. Uh, I tried a bone stimulant uh, simulator uh, of various types and found that didn't work and didn't understand why it wasn't working until I talked to a lot of people a lot smarter than me who said that that's when I found out that the ballistic gel is based on a computer generation of the entire structure of the human body, skin, bone, cartilage, uh, blood, uh, connective, strong tissue, hard connective tissue, et cetera. So it's a culmination of everything, which is why they use it. And that's why the FBI and international wound ballistics and border patrol, and nobody uses anything that simulates a bone. 
And those that do, usually are doing it with water jugs or not getting the, the, the penetration that you would expect to get out of the bullet. So I gave up on it. And I, I went to everything. I mean, I did multimedia testing, including simulated bone that is used by the medical community to uh, for doctors uh, in training to use as actual bone. It has the same consistency as bone, supposed to have the same strength as bone. Um, and I even got some of that, which I got from Switzerland. And I found that it didn't perform properly. So that's what I'm doing with it. And then I'm just, there's so much data with it. I can't do an article or even a couple of articles. So I'm going to end up writing a book on it. And then I'll maybe put some articles out with highlights, but it's a work, you know, work in progress. This is a, kind of a, a new thing. I've got some new ammunition coming um, that I will be testing. I don't want to talk about it too much, but I also have some stuff that Jim Cirillo uh, himself designed and I'm going to get to test his in the same criteria I tested all the inner ammo. So I'm really happy about that. And I, I will talk more about that down the line, but that's going to be interesting to see because Cirillo was also a big fan of the watch cutter. He was, um, oddly enough, uh, for years I hunted with 44 Magnum, uh, as a, you know, a secondary gun, right. And, and pigs, deer, elk, whatever. I carried a, a 44 Magnum and I rolled a, Keith style wad cutter. So it's a semi wad. Uh, and I loaded it to a heavy special light Magnum. And I was talking to our mutual friend, Daryl bulky. And I said, you know, if I ever decided to carry a, a, you know, a 44 Magnum again for me, I was like, what ammunition, what do you like? And he goes, well, I really like a wad cutter style bullet. That's loaded to kind of a light Magnum heavy special. And I went, huh? It's almost like they knew that a hundred years ago and we're just yes, now sir. starting to figure it out again or starting to revisit it. Um, well, I didn't just do 38 special on this. I did every caliber, uh, not every caliber because I don't have a 41, but I did 32, 38, 44 special and 45 auto rim wide cutter loads, uh, factory loads. Plus I also hand loaded cause I'm a hand loader. So I hand loaded a variety of bullets and I tested them side by side to see what they do. And I'm with you. I would, if I was going to carry a 44, I carry uh, a 44 a wad cutter uh, loaded up to about 850 to 900 feet per second. And I tell you what, I don't think there's much on this planet. If I put the bullet where it spoke to that, it won't stop as far as on our continent. Right. Um, so all of that, let's round this out for Joe six pack or, you know, Joe, Dr. Pepper, whatever. Uh, how, what, what do you think a decent criteria for, Hey, I, I need a gun in my home. I need a gun that I've decided to be an armed responsible citizen and I want to select ammo and I have no basis for, for say I'm a new guy. I, I don't know what, what DOJ NIJ, how do I do that? What, what would be your recommendation for that? Well, YouTube university is a. Uh, source, but it's not necessarily a good source. Um, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, Lucky Gunner, I, 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 I can't think enough of them. They, they've done a great job, and I like the documentation they've done. I mean, uh, I'm sure that they did this for revenue, but I'm telling you, they did a very professional job, and I've been impressed with uh, what I've seen from them. Uh, don't agree with everything they do, but that's okay. Uh, that's you know, why there's Volkswagens and Cadillacs. Um, but the average person, if they, if they ask cops, they're going to say a hollow point. 
And they're probably going to recommend some type of semi-automatic because that's all they know. They don't know revolvers. Uh, the revolver days are over. Had you done this, you know, 1985, 1985, they just said a 30-year special revolver. And I still think that's a good criteria for the average person who is not going to go take a lot of classes because that is a gun that everybody in the family can shoot effectively. It doesn't take a lot of work to do it. The manual of arms, as you've talked about in the past, is very simple with it. You can open it, see if it's loaded or see if it isn't. You can load it up and leave it in your house, leave it in your car, um, and you pick it up 10 years from now. And if it hasn't been corroded from being exposed to moisture, it's going to shoot as well as it did the day you loaded it, which I think is a good thing. And it's simple. And again, uh, George, George Ananti did a piece on that about the ideal home defense gun, of which I have resourced to for years. And he said a Smith & Wesson Model 10, uh, Colt Official Police, or then uh, Police Positive, or a Ruger Service 6 were the ideal uh, guns for home protection. And I can't argue with that. It is a good choice uh, still today with wad cutter ammo. And he said the reason why he liked wad cutters is the same reason we've gone over here. And that was 1970s. And it's not nothing's changed. I'm still that I still that same belief. Now, if you can go to Hollow Point, and if you know you want to go to Hollow Point, and that's your favorite thing, but people don't have a gauge as to how performance it is. They think these loads are there. I mean, I know guys who are carrying Scandiums with 357 Magnum out, and I challenge any of them to come out and shoot some of the drills that we shoot that have proven to be a good gauge as to whether or not that gun those stocks, that ammo, and you are a good combination to make it work. Nobody has been able to show me that. And so I think you need to have something that you can hit with, and that's more important than anything else. If you can't hit with it, it doesn't matter what it's loaded with. It doesn't matter what gun you got if you can't hit your target. And hitting your target in an expeditious manner that does uh, the job before the whatever you're shooting at does something bad to you or your family is the next criteria. You've got to be able to deliver those things quickly. And that's where I think the 38 special wad cutter comes into play because I can do that. I can draw, I can shoot, I can hit, and I can put it with surgical precision as to where I need to very quickly. And so more than bullets, like I said, I think is placement. That's a good point for anybody with any gun, right? Um, Anything else you want to add or, uh, you know, if somebody wanted to ship you, a box of 38, 200 wide cutter, you know, let's do a shameless plug here. If you want to give Mark some tests, ammunition or me. <laughs> well, I've got to, I've got to just be careful because right. this could be a never ending thing. Um, I thought I was done until I discovered this, uh, fact that I got somebody who's going to give me some Cirillo's ammo. And we've got a company who is interested in making defensive wad cutter loads for lightweight guns. And so I'm working with uh, Rob Garrett. He and I are working together on this to come up with a load designed for the 38 special lightweight guns to be shot in. You know, I carry hollow points in my steel guns. If I carry a steel gun, then I usually carry the 135 grain jack hollow point from Spear. It's a good, good load. But I can't control it in my air weight. So I don't, and I carry my air weight more than I carry anything else. So that's why I carry wad cutters. So I really don't need a lot of an ammo, guys. Trust me, I've got virtually everything out there. Um, I got 50 plus loads, and I challenge you to find 50 plus loads uh, to go out and test with. And I, again, this criteria I set down is got 
all encompassing from ammunition from the 70s to current ammunition. Uh, in fact, I got some from the 60s that I've uh, tested. And I've done everything I think I can do with it. So I'm going to stick with what I have. So I appreciate that offer to send me ammo. But unless it's something really, really special, I'm probably not going to include it. Because I got, I got to get it done. Because the people are wanting it and me prolonging this is going to take longer. Well, all right, man. Well, thanks for coming on. I'll go ahead and roll us out. All right. Thanks, Mark. I had to do that just in honor of Mark Fricky. All right. Uh, a reminder, check out today's sponsor, ccwsafe.com. Off-Duty 10 gets you 10% off your membership, EDC Belt Co., the foundation belt get one at edcbeltco.com the concealed carry podcast giveaway go check that out sign up weekly and uh of course uh the guardian conference is in september and i'll be there over my 20th anniversary in police work my 20th anniversary for real so come see me you know give me a cupcake or something i don't know um revolver roundups in november It'll be on Gunsight's website. Uh, Mark will be there teaching revolver manipulations. So if you ever want to learn how to load a revolver real fast, Mark is the guy. And uh, be on the lookout for his upcoming study on ammunition. The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Training and Consulting LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.